Hello everyone, this is October 9th, oh, once upon a fly, and if it's Friday, then this is the Delve. We're back, and do we have an episode for you. Today we're unpacking the Vice Presidential Smackdown speaking with an attorney from the ACLU to help us break down the Breonna Taylor case. We're also going to discuss Patient Zero, a.k.a. Donald Trump. But first we begin with the vice presidential debate. What a difference a week makes. The vice presidential debate happened on Tuesday night and went very differently than the debate between President Trump and former Vice President Biden mainly because we could actually hear what people were saying this time around. I know, it's sad. That's the bar we have around here. Moderator Susan Page started out the debate by jumping into questions about the Trump administration's handling of COVID. And Mike Pence jumped right out of that, as well as nearly every other question of the night. I don't know if it was due to lack of debate prep or just not having an answer, but boy, oh boy, was Senator Kamala Harris ready. Here's a clip of some of the night's highlights. The American people have witnessed what is the greatest failure of any presidential administration in the history of our country. If the Trump administration approves a vaccine before or after the election, should Americans take it and would you take it? If the public health professionals, if Dr. Fauci, if the doctors tell us that we should take it, I'll be the first in line to take it, absolutely. But if Donald Trump tells us I should that we should take it, I'm not taking it. How can you expect Americans to follow the administration's safety guidelines to protect themselves from COVID when you at the White House have not been doing so? President Trump and I trust the American people to make choices in the best interest of their health. On January 28th, the vice president and the president were informed about the nature of this pandemic. They were informed that it's lethal in consequence, that it is airborne, that it will affect young people. Can you imagine if you knew on January 28th, as opposed to March 13th, what they knew, what you might have done to prepare? They knew and they covered it up. From the very first day, President Donald Trump has put the health of America first. Before, there were more than five cases in the United States, all people who had returned from China. President Donald Trump did what no other American president had ever done, and that was he suspended all travel from China, the second largest economy in the world. Now, Senator Joe Biden, Biden opposed that decision. He said it was xenophobic and hysterical. But I can tell you, having led the White House Coronavirus Task Force, that that decision alone by President Trump bought us invaluable time to stand up the greatest national mobilization since World War II. We are talking about an election in 27 days, where last week the President of the United States took a debate stage in front of 70 million Americans and refused to condemn white supremacists. Not true. And Not true. it wasn't like he didn't have a chance he didn't do it, and then he doubled down. Bad cops are bad for good cops. We need reform. 
of our policing in America and our criminal justice system, which is why Joe and I will immediately ban chokeholds and carotid holds. George Floyd would be alive today if we did that. We will require a national registry for police officers who break the law. And with regard to George Floyd, there's no excuse for what happened to George Floyd. Justice will be served. But there's also no excuse for the rioting and looting that follow. You know, there's been a lot of talk about who won the debate. <laughs> the, the winner of the debate seems to be the fly that took a pit stop on Mike Pence's hair for a whole two minutes of the debate. That's right. A fly sat on the vice president's hair for two minutes. This was a very new and interesting concept to us as Americans. Our, our nation has never had a live endorsement during a vice presidential debate. Hell, any type of debate. So we researched. What exactly is a fly attracted to? According to the pest control company Orkin, common house flies are attracted to decaying organic filth, such as feces and rotting meat. Last week, we saw the coronavirus decide and endorse their preferred candidate. And so congratulations, Mr. Vice President, and to the entire Trump campaign on yet another endorsement. On a more serious note, perhaps the saddest part of the debate was when the moderator asked about Breonna Taylor's shooting by police officers. When asked about Breonna Taylor's death, Pence said, My heart breaks for any innocent American life, but I trust our justice system. Here's a little of that exchange. Vice President Pence, let me pose the same question to you. In the case of Breonna Taylor, was justice done? You have two minutes uninterrupted. Well, our heart breaks for the loss of innocent, any innocent American life. And the family of Breonna Taylor has our sympathies. But I, I trust our justice system, a grand jury that refused the evidence. And it really is remarkable that as a former prosecutor, you would assume that an impaneled grand jury looking at all the evidence got it wrong. But uh, you're entitled to your opinion, Senator. I think, look, and with regard to George Floyd, there, there's no excuse for what happened to George Floyd. And justice will be served. But there's also no excuse for the rioting and looting that followed. The case of Breonna Taylor has been something we've followed at the Delve since our early episodes. I had the amazing opportunity to speak with Heather Gutnerick, an attorney from the ACLU in Kentucky, to get a bit more clarity on this case and how we've got to this point. Let's take a listen. Hey, Heather, thank you for stopping past the Delve today. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. Heather, tell us a little bit about yourself and the work you do at the ACLU. Sure. My name is Heather Gettnerick. I'm a staff attorney with the ACLU of Kentucky. I work with a small team of attorneys here to bring cases in state and federal court in the state of Kentucky to protect people's civil rights and civil liberties. So sometimes that might mean challenging a law that's passed by our General Assembly if it's patently unconstitutional. Sometimes that might mean bringing a case based on government policy or practice that we see 
that has been violating people's rights. And we uh, do an awful lot of work to try to make sure that people around the state know what their rights are and how they can be protected. I am like one of the millions of Americans who I'm just curious and gobsmacked and amazed and surprised by the saga that has been Breonna Taylor's death and the search for justice from it. We had an episode last season, July 31st, and at that point it had been 140 days since her death. And there had not been any charges, no indictments brought. And finally, in September last month, some six months after her death, there was one indictment brought. This was not actually for the death of Breonna Taylor, but for an officer who shot into the wrong apartment. Am I getting this right? Yes, that is correct. Okay. You know, I think like a reasonable person who's kind of maybe heard the story, three plainclothes officers using no-knock warrant into her home, strong home, and you know, they shoot, she dies, 26-year-old, she's sleeping, and there's no sense of justice for it. What happened here? How did, how did this go so wrong? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, (laughs) You know, I can certainly tell you what the prosecutors Mm. would say about why the case has ended up where it did. And what they would say is that they were serving a warrant that had been signed off on by a judge at an apartment that they claim or they believe may have been the site for some drug activity at some point. And upon trying to enter the apartment, they were shot at by an individual who we now know is Brianna Taylor's boyfriend, Kenneth Walker. And the police defended themselves against that gunfire and shot back. And those facts that I've just laid out aren't entirely false. That's Mm -hmm. not exactly a false narrative. So, you know, I think when we're asking how did it end up here, how did the grand jury end up with this one decision, that recitation of facts is important to keep mm-hmm. in mind. Um, okay. Given that, of course, uh, there's always more information available and more sides to stories, right? So the officers claim that although they had a no-knock warrant, the officers claimed that they did in fact knock at the door and announce themselves as police officers. I think folks who have been following this story carefully know that there is a lot of discussion about whether or not that's true. And most, if not all, of the witnesses who heard the police trying to enter Breonna Taylor's apartment, those witnesses say that they did not hear the police announce themselves. Uh Uh-huh. 
So that is, I think, a difference or a, a discrepancy in the facts. Um, the police will say that they were acting on a proper and legal search warrant because it was signed off on by a judge, which is correct. A judge did sign it. Uh, and we know that when officers go before judges for search warrants, they have to meet a certain standard in order to get the judge's signature. So they did that here. Again, though, if you look a little bit more closely at this, again, I think folks who have been following this will know that one of the things the officers based the decision to get the search warrant on was, they say, evidence from the postmaster general or the postmaster inspector general that Brianna's apartment had been used for drug activity. But from the very beginning of this case here in Louisville, media sources discovered that in fact, no reports had been made by anybody within the post office uh, to confirm the officer's allegations there. Where did it come from? You know, that's a really that's a good question that I don't have an answer to. It's very specific. You know what I mean? It's it's very like, oh, yeah. we have this intelligence from the post office that it's like, whoa, where, where did this even come from? What? Yeah, it definitely seems like a very specific fact to make up. And actually, as this case has been going on here in Louisville, one of the more recent calls for action calls for justice has been related to the officer who alleged that information. His name, I believe, is James. I would have to go back and look at it. But okay. there has certainly been a push now to investigate and hold accountable the officer who put forth what turns out to be false information about the involvement of Breonna Taylor's department in, you know, this alleged drug activity. So I think that what's happened overall is, you know, we've seen that the story put forward by the police, both sort of to the public and then also in part to the grand jury, wasn't the whole story. And that is unfortunately not unusual in the criminal legal system. No, because they're looking for someone else. They're not yes. actually looking for her at all. Right. This was a coordinated effort. I think five search warrants were executed that evening, all related to the alleged drug activity of this one individual who was Brianna Taylor's ex-boyfriend. Who was already in um, custody. He was in custody that night, yes. By the time the police entered Brianna Taylor's apartment, they had uh -huh. already located this other individual. I can't say for certain whether they actually had him in custody, but they knew where he was. Was there no system in place to kind of call off connected search warrants once the individual had been located? That's a good question. I am not certain that the police would have wanted to call off the search warrant because they were not only looking for that individual, they were looking for evidence of the drug trade. Mm. And if they believed, as they claimed, that Breonna Taylor's apartment had been used for this drug activity. I mm -hmm. think that the police officers would say, even with the other individual in custody, we still want to know if there are drugs or other paraphernalia inside Ms. Taylor's apartment. 
probably one of the more like disturbing and hurtful parts of the story is this guy that had already been located and it reminds me of maybe you and, and your family you're looking for the keys and you find them and you just let someone continue to look for them it's like no i found them they're here we can see we can call up to search i think it's a really clear example of how our criminal legal systems priorities are misaligned mm-hmm. that our priorities are out of whack because the officers knew, every officer I believe knows that a no-knock warrant or even a warrant served with knocking, if it's served late at night like this one was, is dangerous. Officers know that they're catching people by surprise. They know they're catching people off guard. And I think it cannot be a surprise to anybody that a person who hears someone banging on their door in the middle of the night may be afraid for their own safety. So officers are aware that these warrants, like what was being executed at Breonna Taylor's apartment, can be dangerous. And yet, they were willing to take that risk because they wanted to see if there were any drugs (laughs) in the apartment. The priority for them wasn't in keeping people safe or in minimizing the chances that people get hurt. The priority for them was, we need to see if there are drugs here. And that to me, just an example and a really good indicator of how our system's priorities are just really out of line. Then we see this indictment come out and it takes the Attorney General, Daniel Cameron, six months. And the case is brought to a grand jury the city is preparing for this uh, announcement. They declare a state of emergency, shut down early, a National Guard's brought in. It's kind of like, okay, this isn't going to go well. Like before the indictment's even announced, like the city starts kind of like setting up for um, riot, and the war that's going to come after this. I don't believe that the city had an indication of what the decision from the grand jury was Mm. when they decided to declare the state of emergency. However, I think it's likely that people within the city government expected that. Isn't that scary? Probably, it probably wouldn't return indictments. Yeah, because our law, we allow police officers an awful lot of latitude in our country. And I think that folks weren't surprised that it came out the way it did, even though for a lot of us here in Louisville, here in Kentucky, it was incredibly disappointing. Right. Can we talk a little bit about the indictment? News headlines, you know, as soon as it was announced was one person charged in the murder of Breonna Taylor, but that's actually, it's incorrect. Mm-hmm. There, right. there wasn't anyone charged in the murder of Breonna Taylor. The indictment for wanton endangerment. Yes. What does that mean? (laughs) So, right. So there were three officers who were being investigated and only one of those ended up being indicted. No indictments were returned on the other two, Mattingly and Cosgrove. Only a Hankinson was indicted and his charges were for recklessly shooting in a way that endangered the neighbors at Brianna Taylor's apartment. So he apparently shot 
what had to have been a sort of wide berth in and around Breonna Taylor's apartment. And he ended up shooting into at least one other apartment, one neighboring apartment. And so his charges for wanton endangerment are because in the act of shooting blindly into another apartment, he acted recklessly in a way that could have harmed or killed somebody else. Thank goodness it didn't, of course. But that's what the basis of the charges was. And none of the charges were related to Breonna Taylor's death. There's this thing going around and and it's basically saying Brett Hankinson had better aim. No charges would have been fouled at all. All three would have been (laughs) off the hook. It's hard to say that's wrong. It's hard to say that that's not a correct reading of this because you're right. The other shots that were fired that night that went into Breonna Taylor's apartment did not end up being the basis of any criminal charges. So it's hard to believe that there's anything incorrect with that statement. Wow. There has been some change with regard to the leadership of the Louisville Metro Police Department. It's hard to say for sure whether that's actually related to this incident, though, because our former police chief, Steve Conrad, was already set to retire Okay. shortly after this all happened. That retirement date was pushed up by about a month, and the mayor appointed an interim police chief, Robert Schroeder, who was just recently replaced with another interim chief, who's a Black woman named Yvette Gentry. So there has been some change in the very top of the leadership tree at the Louisville Metro Police Department. Again, though, because Steve Conrad was already retiring and because Robert Schroeder was only ever going to be an interim chief, it's hard to say whether any of that is actually related to what happened both on the night that Breonna Taylor died and the way that the police have policed the protests in Louisville since that time. Were there certain protections that police had that just made it impossible, like absolutely impossible for the grand jury to come up with indictments for the others for this death? No, there's not a blanket approval of Mm -hmm. officers' actions. I think that it's a slight misreading of the law to say that there's no way that, that the officers possibly could have been indicted with charges related to Brianna's death. It is difficult, though, because Kentucky has a fairly generous self-defense statute, and in particular for officers who are acting in their official capacity, which these officers were as they executed the search warrant, there is quite a lot of latitude given to officers who are defending themselves. And again, it is true that Kenneth Walker did shoot at what he thought were intruders. He didn't realize they were police officers. He thought someone was breaking into his home. And I think that, you know, for a lot of folks, Kenneth Walker's actions that night felt understandable and even justified. But regardless, the officers then, in fearing for their lives, certainly had some latitude under the law in defending themselves. So I think it's not impossible that the officers could have been indicted for a charge related to Brianna's death, whether that be murder or whether it be a lesser homicide charge. But it certainly would be, I think, a more difficult case to make out. However, based on what we've seen from the release of the proceedings before the grand jury, it's Mm -hmm. become quite clear that 
Attorney General Daniel Cameron really didn't, it doesn't seem like he presented all the options to the grand jury. Based on what was released, it appears that Attorney General Cameron's office informed the grand jury that the officers were likely shielded by the self-defense statute and did not in fact present information that could have allowed the grand jury to make their own determination about that. Is that just laziness? Like what well, in the world is he possibly thinking? <laughs> and so, then also, obviously this would come out. He would get pushed back from this and like people are rightfully upset. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So it's not unusual. I mean, well, let me say, just backing up a second. A lot about this grand jury presentation was incredibly unusual. The fact that it lasted two and a half days, the fact that the grand jury heard from multiple witnesses, that's very, very unusual. Is that that like a rapid turnaround? Yeah, I mean, even for serious charges, even for murder charges where police officers are not the ones being investigated, grand jury presentations are normally a matter of minutes. So normally one officer may testify for a few minutes and recite the information that could be included in the arrest warrant or included in the charging document. And that's usually about all you need to get an indictment. It's not an incredibly high bar and it's normally not an uphill battle. In every grand jury presentation, the grand jurors technically do have the ability to do their own investigation and to ask questions and Grand juries can always return charges whether or not the prosecutors recommend them. In practice, however, it's highly unlikely that would happen. We're talking about grand juries, of course, being drawn from the population at large, many of whom haven't considered various criminal statutes before. They're not legal experts. Right. They're not necessarily legal experts. And because of that, grand juries often do rely very heavily, often exclusively, on what the prosecutor tells them and what the prosecutor recommends. And I think that that part of this grand jury presentation was probably pretty common then. I think this grand jury acted like any other in that regard because they took the information that was presented to them. Mm -hmm. Here it was a lot more than normal, but they took the information that was presented to them and they returned a decision that was consistent with what the prosecutor, the attorney general's office, was telling them. Attorney General Cameron, in his defending himself since the announcement was made, he has said several times the grand jury could always have returned other charges. But (laughs) I really think that's, you know, I really think that's a little little disingenuous. disingenuous. Yeah, Yeah, it's, it's disingenuous because he knows as well as anyone else that it's unlikely a grand jury would do that unless they were presented with all of the information, and unless they were informed of what options were available to them, which by all accounts, they were not given this time. This is an interesting question. Is there any type of legal expert to kind of walk a grand jury through their options? Or are they just kind of led by the district attorney and, and his staff? I mean, I think the prosecutor is the legal expert ah. there. For all intents and purposes. Yeah. So there's not like a third party or like an objective person (laughs) to tell them, oh, you guys have the ability to request or investigate. There's no one to tell them that. No, uh, there's not. So these people will literally go in blind and whatever Mm -hmm. they're handed, they say yay or nay. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. 
which is why it's usually yay, because the only information they're hearing is one side of the story from yeah. the police officers. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, the famous adage that a grand jury would indict a ham sandwich, that's because they're given a little bit of information from the police officer who says this person did this action mm. and they have no reason at that point to disbelieve it. Wow. You live in Louisville. How does it feel on the ground? What is it like? What's the atmosphere like? Are people just wildly disappointed? Are they scared of the police? Is there tension? I mean, I can imagine that there's, there is. Where does Louisville go from here? Yes to all of the above. <laughs> oh, quick question. Sorry. <laughs> is there a chance still for the grand jury to introduce charges or has that ship sailed? Well, there wouldn't be a chance for this grand jury to reconsider the charges, but Kentucky does not have a statute of limitations on felony charges. And that means that at any point in the future, literally at any point, because there's no statute of limitations. So if there was like, you know, say a new attorney general elected, this new person could say, hey, I run for election. And one of the things I want to do is take a look at this case again. They could. I think it would be unusual. It would be a little unexpected, but certainly it is an option uh, that another prosecutor could present this case to another grand jury to see if maybe in presenting the full story or in presenting all the options, maybe the outcome would be different. And actually, I think there is a push in the community right now to Mm. try to find another prosecutor who would be more aggressive. Case, yeah. So that's one of the answers to your other question. Yeah. (laughs) In the community is that, you know, there has been, there is a push at the moment to try to get this before a different grand jury. So the Taylor family has gotten a $12 million settlement. Is there any other path of recourse for them to hold these officers accountable? Oh gosh, that's a good question. I mean, I will say that the settlement that the city reached with Breonna Taylor's family did include certain police reforms. Certainly, I think there are many more reforms needed, but it is a good start that the settlement included certain reforms that have to be put in place. And that will be something to keep an eye on going forward. So if any of those reforms aren't met or if the city and the police department fail to adopt those reforms, you know, I think that there could be a way to use that case and that settlement to sort of push the city and push LMPD in that direction. There is a real interest across the city Mm. to be more involved in things like the police contract, the employment contract that the FOP enters into. So I think that there is definitely a real, real interest and a real push among community members. And I believe that Ms. Taylor's family is included in that to make sure that the community at large is much more aware and involved in negotiating things like the contract and other things that will guide policing in the city. Our mayor has said that he's interested in having a civilian review board that is much more involved and has a lot more oversight over the police department. All of this sounds very good. And I think 
it remains to be seen whether we succeed in adopting these kinds of changes and these kinds of reforms. I am optimistic that there's enough real investment from the community that perhaps we can push uh, Louisville forward in this way, but it does remain to be seen. And right now, a lot of these are just promises that haven't yet been implemented. Right. It's an incredible story. It's a sad story. It's eye-opening, I think, um, probably to a lot of folks in America who never had the opportunity to kind of see this injustice in plain sight, to have this indictment come back from the grand jury or the lack of indictments. It's just like a really sour cherry on top of the things we just need to change in society. In the community groups that have been out there in the streets of Louisville since May. I really just appreciate you taking the time to come and speak to us here at the Dell. Thank you for doing this story. I do think it's an incredibly important time for us. And I do hope that people stay engaged and stay involved. I'm really optimistic that folks will here in Louisville. This does feel like a, feels different here. And that's my case in hope. And you guys are having a pretty big uh, election. You got some big leaders, some big decisions to make in November. Yeah, we have a pretty big election coming up. I mean, all the elections are important. And I think recently, I think folks have seen, you know, of course it matters who the president is and who our senators are, but local elections matter an awful lot too. And so I think the ACLU is doing a pretty good job across the country of making sure that people are aware of local races as well and making smart decisions when it comes to local elected officials. The down-ballot races, they're just as important. It's really going to affect your day-to-day life um, in your communities where you live. Exactly. I mean, the prosecutors... Yeah, the attorney general. whether or not... In this case, (laughs) right. The prosecutors who decide whether or not to prosecute police officers for the violence that they may inflict against people... Those prosecutors are elected, not just the attorney general, but our local prosecutors are elected. So the local Commonwealth attorney and county attorney here in Louisville are elected officials. And, you know, they, those are the people who are making the charging decisions. I mean, all charging decisions, whether they be officers, whether they be protesters who are arrested for riot, you know, the prosecutors are the ones making those decisions. And I think they have a a real outsized powerful role in our justice system because of those decision-making roles that they play. I feel like that's like a great call to action to America. Pay attention (laughs) to Mm -hmm. the down-ballot races. Yes, down-ballot races and judges too. I mean, again, when we're talking about who gets bonded out and who gets held in jail awaiting trial on a bail that they can't afford, those decisions are made by judges, all of whom are elected. So easy to pay attention to the top of the race, the top of the ballot, rather. Those races certainly get the most attention and the most money. But I think that the folks on the down ballot races are sometimes even more important. Yeah. Wow. Okay. We really, really have to end it now. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone, this is Heather Gettnerick from ACLU, Kentucky. You are amazing. Thank you for your expertise and breaking down this incredibly complex situation. We owe you. We pivot now to our super spreader in chief, Donald J. Trump. 
Critical questions this morning about the testing and treatment timeline for President Trump. On Thursday, a White House official confirms the president took a rapid coronavirus test after he arrived home from a New Jersey fundraiser. That came back positive before the president went on Fox News, a detail he did not disclose. By then, the president was apparently waiting for results from the more conclusive PCR test. I just went for a test, and we'll see what happens. I mean, who knows? That doesn't explain why the president had still traveled that afternoon, even after being exposed to aide Hope Hicks, who was already showing symptoms of the coronavirus and began to quarantine herself the night before. Overnight Thursday into Friday, the president revealed he'd been diagnosed, and that morning he got sicker faster. He spiked a fever, and his blood oxygen level dropped, so doctors gave him supplemental oxygen. At the time, White House officials painted a much different picture. Continues to be not only in good spirits, but very energetic. On Saturday, another drop in oxygen levels and another question of how that was treated. Did you give him a second round of supplemental oxygen yesterday? Uh, I'd, have to, I'd have to check with the nursing staff. Uh, um, I don't think that if he did, it was very, very limited. So what about the people the president was exposed to? The White House says it's following CDC guidelines on contact tracing. And after initial frustration from New Jersey officials about a lack of cooperation, according to a source with knowledge of it, state officials confirm they've now received information for attendees at Thursday's fundraiser. But in Minnesota, where the president held a rally Wednesday, a health department spokesperson says no one from the White House or Republican National Committee has reached out. The RNC says the state never asked. And the governor of Ohio, where the first presidential debate was held, says he hasn't heard from the administration about contact tracing either. Uh, they've not talked to me about it, no. The White House says necessary notifications have been made. Now, the focus is increasingly turning to what happened in the Rose Garden last Saturday when the president announced his Supreme Court nominee. You are going to be fantastic. At least eight people from that event have now tested positive, including Governor Chris Christie, Kellyanne Conway, and Senator Mike Lee, seen on camera hugging other attendees. It wasn't just outside. Pictures from an indoor reception show few masks and no social distancing either. Altogether, 11 people linked to the White House or campaign have tested positive, including the president's body man, Nick Luna, his campaign manager, Bill Stepien, three senators, Lee, Tom Tillis and Ron Johnson, and two people involved in the president's debate prep, Christie and Conway. It's at that debate that the president's family appeared without masks. People from the Cleveland Clinic came over and offered the first family masks, thinking maybe they didn't have them. They were waved away. Even now, a top campaign advisor is still disparaging the president's Democratic opponent, Joe Biden, for his mask wearing, a protective measure the CDC recommends. With regard to Joe Biden, I think too often he's used the mask as a prop. Oh, yes. Mr. Biden has used the mask as a prop. I guess that's why he's corona-free. Trump, the super spreader, has now given more than a dozen people the virus. Some say the true number may be in the 30s. And yesterday, his doctors gave him the okay to interact with human beings as early as Saturday. Yes, Saturday. As in tomorrow. Trump said he's going to hold a Florida rally on Saturday and, and perhaps a Sunday rally in Pennsylvania. Eek. This man was literally just hospitalized, getting oxygen just the other day. He's infested the White House. Apparently now there's flies there. He's a sickly walking national security risk.
He's also infected a crap ton of his own staff, including one of our favorites, Callahan Conway. Just a little bit ago, she said this. You talked about how the administration initially had this contained, but during that time, why did the administration send out more tests and work to get hospitals prepared? I mean, even today, the state of Florida is saying they can't test everyone for the administration's guidelines because they don't have tests. So you're asking a couple different things there. I'll, I'll try to just give some facts. Uh, the, the HHS secretary said this morning that we're ramping up. We're ramping up but with commercial now? labs. Why didn't they do it while it was contained? Get ahead of it. It is being contained. And do you not think it's being contained in this I'm country? I'm not a doctor and a lawyer. Well, but you said you said it's not being contained. So are you a doctor or a lawyer when you say it's not being contained? That's the false. You just said something that's not true. Well, Kellyanne, we know it's contained now. It's contained inside the Republican Party. Fun fact. Claudia Conway, the 15-year-old daughter of our very own Kellyanne, has gone viral by consistently leaking information about the status of the White House COVID outbreak. She let her followers know via TikTok and Instagram that her mom was coughing around the house, subsequently infecting Claudia and her family with the virus. Do it now. You say correction. I am. I'm doing it right now. My mom had three tests. I'm doing it right now. What? You've caused so much disruption. Disruption? You lied about your mother about COVID? No, mom. About COVID? It's how I interpreted it. You interpreted it? You're taping me again? Who would have thought that a 15-year-old is the whistleblower we've all been waiting for? This is really interesting. I actually really want to continue to watch this super spreader space. I don't know. I kind of feel a special episode coming. Thanks for listening in. I'll see you all next Friday. This is The Delve.